Hello and welcome to another episode of Gaming from the First Age and I'm First Age. Hi, so this episode is all about Pathfinder and specifically Pathfinder 2nd Edition. That's right, I said I would do it. Well, I have. So there you are. Now, as we know, Pathfinder is quite a large game. The 2nd Edition rulebook, you know, we're talking 650 pages or so, I think. So it's big. So I haven't been able to keep this episode down to the half hour that I've always pledged I would do. We're talking just over an hour, I think. But it's worth it. My goodness me, is it worth it. We're going to delve into the depths of Pathfinder. Well, a little bit. I mean, to be honest, in an hour, you can't really do that, can you? So how am I going to do this? Well, I said I would need a wingman or wing person, somebody basically to help me out because actually, you know, I'm I'm still relatively new to Pathfinder and I want to ask some fairly searching questions. And so I've, I, I found somebody. And in fact, as it happens, it's my good friend, Andrew, who is a sort of noted, well-known and well-respected Pathfinder GM. He knows Pathfinder inside and out. And I've got the opportunity to have a bad now with Andrew talking about Pathfinder and asking those searching and difficult questions. So that's to come in the main segment of this podcast. Now, I have to say, this is the first time I've done an interview and recorded ever, I think. So I'm still playing with the tech. The way we did it, or the way I decided to do it, um, I'm sure I'll get letters about this, is we, we had a go at uh, uh, Discord. So we both went onto Discord and I recorded the Discord session um, through OBS and got an output file, which I then put into Audacity and fiddled around with as best as I could. I think you'll find it interesting. Where I was coming from with this was partly in response to some commentary that I've been uh, having with other podcasters, but also just, just a general question about complexity. And, you know, Pathfinder, it's a bit hard to play, isn't it? You know, those sorts of questions. And we're going to delve into the depths of that and look at some of the myths, perhaps, that surround Pathfinder and examine them in some detail. So that's what we've got. I hope you, look, I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get into the main interview. So in this segment, um, I've got a special guest. And uh, so uh, welcome, Andrew. Hello. Thank you. Now, Andrew is a good friend of mine um, and is a well-known, uh, well-respected GM for Pathfinder of many years. Uh, Andrew, then to come on and help me out to understand Pathfinder a little bit better uh, and to answer some tricksy questions, perhaps. So, without further ado, now, I don't know, so I just, just something about my entry into the game. So I, I had this choice it was at UK, UK Games Expo. Now, I was physically there, so it must be at least a year ago. And I think it coincides with the UK Expo just before the second edition was released. And in fact, Jason Bulmer was there. Uh, yeah, it was It was released now. It's a year. It's been after a year. Yeah. And it was released uh, It was released at Gen Con last year, so August last year. So Pizer were there at Expo because Expo was one of their supported cons. And I think Bullman was across for that, and they were demoing it because they were in the. I think they'd come to the end of the playtest point, but they were still running demos to sort of you know gather interest for the game. Yeah, I think I pl- I played in one of the demos, so it must have been May two thousand and nineteen, I guess then. And it was interesting, so I'd come to a decision point that I was going to 
return, if you like, to what I would call sort of high fantasy, sort of power level role playing game. And I wanted to pick one. And uh, so Pathfinder was, if you like, it was coming, it was cusping, although obviously first edition was well established. Uh, and I did pick up on a number of occasions the fifth edition sort of uh, slipcase sets retailing for about 100 quid, I think. And I, my daughter had just got into fifth edition because she was, she'd enjoyed Critical Role. She was enjoying it. And I thought, well, the sensible thing to do would be to go into fifth edition because my daughter's into it and therefore I would start to play some of that. And it, it seemed it seemed rather popular, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but something held me back. And I don't know, I enjoyed the Pathfinder second edition game, you know, the demo. It was, it was a, the, the gem was really good. I mean, it was about a 20 minute bish bash bosh on a pyramid or something. It's quite good fun. And I just held off and I thought, I'll, I'll give that a go. And I've, I've started to do that since. But I, it's interesting, Pathfinder Society. I mean, when I was at Expo, they had their own room with banners. And I, you know, yeah. I used to be quite religious uh, and <laughs> I was in the Christian Union. And I don't know, I looked at them and I, I won't say it put me off. I mean, there was a huge enthusiasm, obviously, in the room for Pathfinder. I did stick my head around. But um, is it a cult? And, and are you one of the high priests? There are certainly elements of cultishness about it, arguably. Um, Pathfinder Society is the is the organised organisation for Paizo. Right. Um, from Paizo's point of view, it's a marketing mechanism to um, get out sort of you know exposure for its products. Because to use material in Pathfinder Society games, you have to have bought the actual sort of thing it comes from. Um, so that's part of it. But it's also you know, a massive um, uh, organized place system with um, presence at conventions across the world. Um, in our current COVID times, uh, all of those face-to-face -face conventions have turned into online ones. And I think there are about four of them running just this weekend uh, because it's Labor Day weekend in the US and loads of their cons are on that holiday um, weekend. Um, it's not a cult. It's something I've been involved with now for, um, oh God, how long would it be? Uh, started in season four, so about seven years now. I've run games for it, both in first edition and now in second edition. Um, most of the games I run have been online. Right. I'm online GM because there isn't really a, much of a face-to-face -face presence up here where I live in the, you know, in the frozen wastelands of the north. <laughs> um, um, there's a bit of fifth ed um adventures league stuff i think at Forbidden planet but there's no organized pathfinder presence um, and actually i quite prefer running online because it makes lots of the practical stuff much easier i don't have to leave my house uh, but what it's helped what it's allowed me to do is meet literally hundreds of gamers from across the world get to know people make new friends you know able to sit down at any table and have a, a baseline expectation of how things are supposed to work i on the back of the stuff i've done i've managed to set up several different long-running uh, sort of home game type groups to run the adventure paths that Paizo produces. Right, yeah. So I've, done, I've ever done three of them. I'm running one at the minute, and that has players in it from Canada, America, and Australia. Wow. Um, and it's quite some juggling of time zones yeah. to get us all in the same room at the same time in a way you know, when people aren't supposed to be asleep. But yeah, it, it's an excellent opportunity to meet loads of new people a, in a sort of a shared setting uh, and play games. So there, it is a bit cultish. It can sometimes be a little bit cliquish, which is true of any yeah. Um, yeah. community of any kind, and you know, especially games. I'm sure you, you go to a lot of the 
uh, UK cons, and you know, there's a reason one one particular con is called CleekCon. Um, but for me, it's been brilliant uh, because it's given me an opportunity to, to meet lots of different people who play games in different ways, who are but who are interested in the same thing. Great. And, and which adventure path are you running at the moment? I'm currently running, running one called War for the Crown, which is one of the later first edition adventure paths, which is all about a rumbling civil war. Um, and it's a, a fairly strongly sort of intrigue and and not quite, but sort of musketeery type, right. you know, uh, fighting for the for the woman who would be queen. And it's been really good, really interesting. Yeah. Nearly, I, I, yeah, but, no, absolutely. I mean, I... So I, I think one of the draws for me actually was the the adventure path legacy of our history, if you like, that, that Paizo seemed to have developed, where it's sort of like, you know, six books, levels one to 15, stroke 20, nice, sort of nicely plotted, well-packaged. And I'm running Shattered Star at the moment, which is a, a, another first edition adventure path set in Magnamar in Varicia, sort of rune lordy uh, in terms of its lore. And the, and the players are having great fun. I happen to be running it with second edition because it's the one I have, but um, it's it's good. Yeah, and, I mean, and that that is Paizo's history. So if you go back to the start of things, which was during the third edition era when Paizo was starting up as a third party publisher for third edition D and D, they were an adventure publisher. That's what they did. They wrote and developed adventures. They took on I think Dragon and, and Dungeon for a while, but they were primarily an adventure writer. And then when Wizards went to fourth, they, they shifted, they produced their own game, and Pathfinder 1 was essentially third edition with their house rules added in, in effect. Uh, but they still remained primarily an adventure writing organization. Right. So producing a volume of an adventure path every month, six um, volumes to a whole campaign, that's two entire campaigns, entire detailed sort of 600 pages worth of campaign material in a month, sorry, in, in, in six months, and two of those a year. They then developed, as they went on, because they then created their own system, they shifted gear a bit and started producing rules content as well. Uh, and obviously, by the time first edition completed, we've had 10 years of content. So that is, what, 20 adventure paths, pretty much. So 20 full, fleshed-out, detailed campaigns, but also an enormous amount of other game content for the game. Um, huge quantity so you know there's loads of so people who want to wanted to continue to play first ed still had masses of stuff to do and still have masses of stuff there that can draw on but there's also a load they can draw on if you want to if you want to homebrew and adapt and and develop and in fact they're going back to some of their older stuff for second edition so there's um they're revamping the kingmaker adventure path as a second edition ap so Kingmaker was the kingdom building one where you're effectively, your group is going, you're given a sort of a charter and you go out into the wilderness and try to forge your own kingdom. Um, so we're getting a second edition version of that at some point. I'm looking forward to that. I think it, I think it's now scheduled for next year, isn't it? And uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I may, I, I may jump in on that one, to be honest. No, that's fantastic. As you say, there's a, there's an absolutely massive legacy of of amazing, uh, amazing adventures, and they've really they've really built out their sort of homeworld setting of Galarian uh, considerably. I, I, and I have to admit, I may have, I may have jumped into some of the second edition books, and uh, 
They're absolutely brilliant. I, you know, certainly when I, way back then, back at UK Games Expo, I, I sat down and I thought, this is the this is quintessentially what I remember sort of D&D fundamentally to be. It's, it's, it's well-constructed. Uh, they seem to put it together really, really well. It, it played very smoothly. The, 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 these were just, you know, first-level uh, iconic characters. Had a, great, had, a, had a great time with it. And I thought, no, 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 maybe this is the one for me. So I, I did indeed sort of jump in. But something about, I think one of the themes of this uh, chat I wanted to make was around, I'm going to call it complexity or, or sort of game complexity. And Pathfinder 2nd Edition sort of inherits, I think, uh, perhaps from 1st Edition, I don't know, a reputation for complexity uh, with many, you know, situational and feat modifiers. I mean, would you say it's fair to say that it's quite a, it's quite a complex game, both to run and to play? I don't think it is. So I'm going to qualify that statement. So complexity for me sits on a spectrum of games. So you can go all the way off to the left to the non-complex, something like Fate Accelerated, which is about as, you know, you can put the, the rules of Fate Accelerated on one side of A4. You probably wouldn't even get to the end of it. <laughs> yeah. At the top end of it, you've got something like Rollmaster, where I once spent three weeks creating a character and they died in the first action of the first round of the first combat when they got shot in the eye by an orc with a bow. <laughs> so we've got these sort of two extreme ends, and within that, we've got games which fall uh, across the, the range. So for me, if we go back to Pathfinder 1, which inherits its rules from 3rd edition D&D, that is definitely towards the right end. Not anywhere near Rollmaster or anything, but it's... Uh, when it started off, it was relatively complex, and a third edition had as one of its design intentions this idea of system mastery, that players would do better the, m the more they understood how the system worked, and it had choices which were very variable in terms of what the likely impact on the game would be of those choices. Yeah, and that was something inbuilt into third edition, this idea that um, you could basically have characters which were vastly different in terms of effectiveness in all kinds of different areas, depending on whether you wrote on your character sheet rogue or druid. Yeah. And that was pretty much, that would you know, largely de determine how effective you would like to be. And I'm not just talking about combat, I'm talking about across the whole game, in terms of things that you might want to do, you know, the ability to achieve your ends was very, very variable in something like third edition. And Pathfinder was no different in that. And as Pathfinder added more and more and more content, became more and more complex, because the sheer volume of choices you had was immense. Pathfinder 2 takes a step back from that. It's, so, and actually I'm going to talk about 5th Ed as well. 5th Ed is much more towards the left. 5th right. Ed um, right. is, has much more in common for me with 1st um, and 2nd edition AD&D. Because you pretty much, you pick your class, your race, you pick some skills, you pick your specialization at 3rd, and then you're pretty much locked in. There's not a huge number of other choices to make. You may be using the feet system, so every so often you pick a feet from a relatively short list. So, you know, it's relatively structured. PF2 sits between those two sort of poles, as it were, in that, um, yes, there are lots of options, and the core rule book is enormous, but similar to games like 13th Age or 4th Ed, you don't need to know it all. The only bits that you need to know are the bits that relate to your character which cuts down how much you need, your, your options choices and sort of options paralysis quite significantly. It's restructured how you build your character. So um, you're no longer fiddling about with point buy for stats. You're simply making choices which 
innately affect what your stats end up as. You're still picking feats, but they are, and they come actually probably more quickly, uh, but it's from a smaller list. They're broken down into different types. You're not having to deal with complicated multi-classing issues. Multi-classing is a much simpler way of doing it. There are how things like skills work is more streamlined. So you, and in fact, combat as well, it's more streamlined. It's using the proficiency system. And all of that, to me, makes it run more easily, more smoothly. Um, characters in um, second edition, they have what we often describe as a, a higher floor of competency, but a lower ceiling. So in third edition, it was quite possible, quite by accident, to create a character that was terrible at everything, <laughs> um, or one that was brilliant at everything. So you had this system in which you could build your character, and as you leveled up, it got worse and worse. The divergence got more and more, where you could be more and more and more effective or less and less and less effective. Uh, and you could have, obviously, these characters in the same party, so you had what we described as a very high ceiling of optimization, if you want to put it that way. Lots of different ways in which characters can become extremely capable across a range of areas. Mm. And at a very low floor, lots of ways in which you can become really rubbish, depending on the choices you made and how good your system mastery was. Second edition changes that because of how the proficiency system works. It squishes those much closer together. So it's very hard to create a character that's really useless at what your class is generally designed to do, unless you actively go out and choose to do that. But likewise, it's really hard to create a character that makes the content obsolete because you are so powerful or effective or um, flexible that you can address every situation just on your own. In, in first edition and in third edition AD, uh, D&D, it was really easy to do that. Really, really easy to end up. By about level seven, you could create characters that can quite happily not need the rest of their group and just do stuff on their own without anything else, which is a bit of an oddity for a team-based game yeah. like D&D um, and its derivatives. PF2, you can't do that. PF2 is a very strongly team group uh, organized game you because you can't the, the options aren't there and i doubt they will ever be there because of how proficiency works to get you to the point where you can ignore the dice yeah so in first edition you could build your character to the point where it actually didn't really matter what you rolled on the d20 in most situations you were going to pass yeah you were going to succeed yeah uh, the dice became yeah. by a certain point the dice became irrelevant pathfinder 2 that is never the case because of how proficiency scales, and because assuming you're, you're you know, dealing with things which are sort of level appropriate, so you know, dealing with things which you would expect to be dealing with in the sorts of adventures higher level characters do, you're always going to have to roll the dice. There's always going to be a moderate chance of failure. Yeah, we'll perhaps come back into that because uh, I'm interested in that, and I'm, I'm certainly interested in. I'm going to use the maths word, but I'll come back to that. Come back, come, come back to that. I mean, certainly one of there, I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no that's, that's fantastic. I mean, I suppose my... Can I, can I just come back to complexity, because I did one. Yeah. So, complexity, I don't think it becomes more complex. What you get, though, so, so the base rules don't change as you get to high level. They are the same. Yep. So the rules that you learned at level one for you know, how cover works, if you want to shoot something hiding behind a tree, are the same at level one as they are at level 15. What changes are the number of options available to you as a character. So you will have more options at higher level. So there's the risk of a degree of analysis paralysis. Mm. But what you 
don't have as necessarily more complex options. And that's also, uh, if we talk about it in terms of combat, because combat um, runs on the basis of in every turn, you get to do three things. And things generally tend to consist of one action, two or three actions. So there's a hard-coded limit in terms of how much you can do in any one particular round of combat. So you just have to pick from the options that you have which one you want, which one or ones that you want to use. So you get more things to, that you can choose from, but you aren't necessarily doing more things in any one particular round. And therefore, each turn isn't more complex. The game... I don't think that necessarily makes it more complex. You just have to be aware of the different things you can do uh, and have an idea of how you want to pick between them. Yeah. I mean, I came from first edition. So, I, you know, it's been a bit a bit of a big jump from me. I've gone from first edition pretty much. And I played every single edition for about one session. Mm -hmm. So I haven't been a, a big D&D player. I was big in 81 to 83, first edition. And then I, and then I, then I jumped, it, well, kind of via things like 13th Age a little bit. I jumped into Pathfinder. It's a bit like buying a car in the 80s. And, you know, it, it, it's functional, it works. Uh, you've got to do a lot of the work, actually, to make it actually drive. You, you then jump into buy a, buy a car now, and, well, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very smooth experience. And, and I have to say, when I, when I played Pathfinder, I think it was maybe the three-action economy. It, it all just, everything just clicked into place. And it, it, you know, it, it just seemed to, it just seemed to be, well, it seemed to be well designed. Whereas perhaps first edition, I, I mean, I, I can't remember it very well, frankly, but I, I did feel probably if I go back, I'll be horrified at looking at the, I don't know, the players' help. Uh, people call first edition um, a really rules light system. I assume those people have never actually opened the um, uh, 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 the GM book for first edition because it is a hideous, complicated <laughs> mess of rules, which will appear to have been put into the book using some sort of random number generator to determine which bit goes where. The idea of first edition AD&D being rules light, simple or straightforward can only have been put forward by people who have never actually sat down and read it or who are remembering what things were like when they were 14 with some very, very rosy-eyed spectacles. Now, that's not to say I don't like first aid. I do. I think there's a real space, but I really do quite like uh, sort of looking and digging through the older systems. Mm. On the complexity side, I would peg PF2 at around about as complex as 13th Age. 13th Age gives you a range of encounter and daily and at-will abilities. PF2 doesn't use those sorts of terminologies, but it gives you similar sorts of things. It gives you things from your class. It gives you stuff that you can pick up as skill feats, which, again, just modify what one particular skill might do. A general feats, lots of things can just be baked in very easily. I wouldn't call the character building part of pf2 any more complex than 13th age the rules bit is because pf2 is more designed for the small scale skirmish battle format where you're interested in things about like how far things can move whether you've got to cover that sort of stuff yeah i have to admit i i um certainly for character gen in pathfinder 2 i i almost always use path builder 2 now which is a an android app. yeah Oh, God, yes, yes. Pathfinder 2 is brilliant. I can do it by hand if I want to. It's not yeah. difficult. Pathfinder 2. Uh, so I use two different character builder systems. So for a long time, I've used Hero Lab. So for first edition, I used the Hero Lab Classic, uh, and I invested quite a significant amount of cash in building the, in buying the various different bits for it because they got to a point where for Pathfinder 1, it became really difficult to dig through all of the options to make decisions about what you wanted to use. Mm. I play a bit of Starfinder, 
and are you and Starfinder is now getting to that point where there's lots of stuff out there, lots of mechanics to dig through. So I invested in Hero Lab Online to manage my Starfinder characters. When it came to PF2, I looked at Hero Lab Online for PF2. I don't particularly like Hero Lab Online. I find it quite clunky. Um, but the Path Builder app is ludicrously streamlined in a in a way which I'm not entirely sure how he gets away with it. Uh, frankly, but it's brilliant. Um, uh, for yeah, just showing you the options, and it also seems to be added adds all the new content to it. So I assume it's licensed in some way, uh, but yeah, it is it is um, it's an excellent tool. It makes character building very simple. It does. I mean, certainly, uh, I've introduced the game to my family, and they they've all used the Path Builder too, and and, and they love. It's basically becomes very much. Uh, it, it takes all the background stuff away, and it's all about making your choices. It's you know, yeah. it's it becomes a bit of a pick and mix. What what do I fancy? Which which of these options? And every time you click on one, it, it actually opens out and tells you what it is. So you you've got that all. Exactly. Time, so it's pretty good. And it also strikes me that thinking of it, staying with the complexity theme, it's a it is you know it is a six hundred and fifty ish page rule book. But of that, the encounters section, if you like, the bit about the detail about how you undertake encounters, battles, and so on, is about forty pages. I think that chapter is about forty pages long. Obviously, our listeners won't be able to see this because we're not using the video. You can. You know what this looks like. So, where if I look at the index, where is it hiding? Ah, this is why I don't like using Apple and, rulebook. And he's whipped out his premier um, sort of uh, special edition rulebook that I bought the Pfizer from last week. Yeah, the GME section is what is forty-eight pages long. Yeah, and that covers the whole sort of building encounters, running stuff, loads of different things. Um, the player rules bit is forty pages. Yeah, yeah, it's not that complicated. At the end of the day, no, no, no. I, and I, I, I sort of having having run it a few times, it's 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 sort of largely in place now. Um, and it, and the bit that I don't know, the bits the bits that I don't know, and I haven't actually bothered is, sorry, what what feats have you got? What's it called? You know, I I don't necessarily know them all, but I've got I've got ways round of finding them really really quickly anyway. So things like that though, because that then this comes back to my view about how I've run a thirteenth age in the past. You as the GM. Don't necessarily need to know that. That's a player thing. They can tell you what their feats do. Yeah, the player says, I want to, I'm going to power attack this monster. Right, well, okay, you know how power attack works. Great, get on with it, do it. If I need to ask a question about it, I can. You can You can then tell me yeah. what it does. Yep. Um, so the bits of, uh, and you see the same thing in 5th edition, for example. I need to know the rules for how things, how I run things. I don't necessarily need to know all the rules about how your class works. Necessarily, you know, if there's an issue, you tell me. You're the player, your character, you're running it. You tell me how it works. Yeah, I mean, and certainly for beginners. So, I mean, it, I mean, we're sort of, sort of, you know, well, I speak for myself mostly. I'm a sort of crusty old gamer, but I've sort of been at this for quite a while. But I have introduced the game to to beginners, as I say, family for starters, and and they they took to it really extraordinarily quickly, and 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 had no problem with it at all. I mean, ha, have you had much opportunity, maybe as part of your PFS Pathfinder Society, or indeed your other exploits, had opportunity to introduce Pathfinder to beginners? And how's that gone? I've had loads of opportunities to introduce new players to the game. Most of my play is online. When Pathfinder Two came out, fair to say that it didn't take a section of the PF1 player base with it. There are still plenty of people out there happily just playing PF1 who want nothing to do with it. And that's going to happen whenever you have an addition change. There are plenty of people there who will play both, and then there are some who will just play PF2. But it also has brought in a load of new people. 
And especially with the shift to everything being online, loads of people who were playing at home before are now looking for online opportunities. And there are masses of those out there. So um, our organized play organization has an OP Discord. I'm just having a look at it now, um, which has, I think, something in the region of 2,000 people on it, just on our, our one Discord for organized play. And games run, which are organized there every day of the week in virtually every time zone. We've had a lot of new players come in, and that's been great. And it has worked very well. They've generally, you know, they've been gamers of other games, perhaps, who've come to have a look. We've seen quite a lot of um, influx of previously fifth ed players who are perhaps looking for something for a system which has a maybe a bit more detail to it as well. We've had quite a few fifth ed Adventurers League players coming because if I'm brutally honest, AL is not very well organized if i can say that you at least compared to that process where they they manage their, their their rules and stuff on a facebook group which just strikes me as mad because um, facebook groups are awful to find things in um, but yes we've had a lot of new players come in and they've taken to the game really easily because at its core to create a new character you pick your ancestry make some choices to it you pick your class make some choices related to it you pick a background where you don't have a choice. It just tells you what you get. And then you buy some stuff with a small amount of cash. Yeah, As a, as a creating a starting character goes, that's not hard. No. Um, and especially we direct people to use Path Builder as well if they can, if they've got an Android device. So we've had a lot of new players uh, taken to the game very easily. The rules are not complex and they can be explained uh, as you play. So you don't need to as what sometimes, you know, We've both been to conventions where you've set, sat down to a con game and the GM has spent the first 40 minutes explaining how the rules work. Uh, and the next you know, 40 minutes going through each character and explaining what they can do, yeah. um, and by which time you are bored to tears. Um, <laughs> you don't really need to do that for you. You can explain how things work as you go along. So introducing rules elements as you play, explaining to players how things work. It also helps that Roll20 which is I hate it for various reasons, Roll20 actually has a really quite good inbuilt Pathfinder 2 character sheet. There are some reasons why I intensely dislike it, but for doing all the basic stuff, it's absolutely fine. It's, it's click and select, click and select, and then hit a button to do a thing. It, it simplifies that side of things really easily and really helps with bringing new players into the game. Yeah. Okay, so smooth game, uh, well-constructed and designed. In some ways, beginners can pick up and run, and certainly that's also been my experience. Um, I think providing you're careful about introducing the rules gradually uh, to people as things crop up. Yes, if you try to do a big info dump at the start, which is with any other game, it will fail horribly. Yeah, if I was to try and go for the 40 pages all in one go. uh, (laughs) But now, so, so, um, which is fine, which is fine, of course. And I think you've touched on this, but let's just just return to this one, because this is sort of one of the reasons for for me sort of shipping you in, um, if you like. Uh, And that was, you get to fifth, I'm going to say fifth, sixth, tenth level. Now, if I'm I'm right, and I think I am, as you um, gain your levels, every level gives you something. And that's one of the plus things about it you you get a real sense that you're developing at, at, at every stage it might be a yeah. class feat if it's at a particular level it might be a skill feat it might be uh you know certainly a proficiency increase because you get that every single level there's always something going on 
your proficiency bonus increases, but you don't get a bump from trained to expert or whatever at every level. No, true enough. But there is that, if you like, there is that kind of sense that at every level, something is happening just to push you forward a little yes. bit. Now, which is fine. But when you get to something like, I'm going to say 6th to 10th, so into the sort of mid-level range, if you like, you have you have accreted quite a number of abilities. You've, you've got some some feats, some of which might, I don't know, heighten or something over time. So they, they, they sort of remain useful, if you like, at higher levels. But you've certainly got, I imagine, and I haven't done a lot of this, you see, uh, quite a lot on your sheet. You know, that, that, that feat list has sort of grown a little bit. Does the game, I mean... Surely the game must bog down a little bit, mustn't it, at that point? Too many moving parts, too many feats, options. You mentioned the analysis paralysis. Is there something about you've almost got too much to play with? And I'm talking at mid-level, and I'm sure at higher level, obviously, that, that I'm going to call it a problem. Is it a problem? And, 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 and does it mount, if you like, as the levels come, uh, come on? I think so. You do get more options as you get to higher level. That's absolutely true. But they come in different forms. They're in different buckets, if you will. So some options will stick, uh, some, some choices will stick extra options in, say, your combat bucket, things you can do in the middle of a fight. Some of them will stick into your skills bucket, things that you might do in combat if the skill is ready to do, or that you're more likely doing in exploration mode when you're searching about or if you're dealing with NPCs or something like that. Some will sit in the fixed effect bucket where these things just change the numbers on your sheet and actually, once you've picked them, you can forget that they exist at all because they're just baked into the existing numbers. Yeah. So whilst you get lots of things, perhaps across the level, not all of them require you to make choices. They're just there and they apply, and not all of them apply in every situation. So actually, you end up with a narrower range of things you have to pick between depending on the situation that you're dealing with. And in fact, some of those class things will also just, or, or skill feats, will also just add to the numbers. They'll just be a fixed thing. So you get general feats. You might, for example, take the toughness general feat. Once you've taken it, it just ups your hit points a bit. You can forget it exists. Yep. You can even sit in your character sheet, but it's in that little box of, this has done a thing. I now never need to really think about that thing anymore. Although having said that, toughness might also up your chance to survive if you get knocked out. So you might that might not be a great example. Um, but there are plenty of things that do that. So as you up to higher levels, yes, you get more options. But I have not found that it creates an overwhelming number of options. Even when you talk at very high levels, so we've had now already two full adventure paths. And the thing about, for second edition, and the thing about second edition adventure paths, which is quite different to most of the first edition ones, is that they are designed to be played from level one to level 20. Most 1A APs stopped at about 15. A couple of them went to 18, and I think one or two might have gone to 20 ever. Most stopped at 15, because the designers recognized that after 15 in first edition, the game fell apart. The truth was, after about level 7 in first edition, it was very easy for the game to fall apart, um, because of how variable characters could be within the same party. So to give an example, I to, I'm running the War for the Crown adventure path, my group are level 14. Uh, I've got five of them. Even though I have restricted what rules elements they can use, so I've said you can only use stuff from this one or two books. If you want anything beyond that, you've got to okay it with me first. I'm still at the point where pretty much I have to rewrite every combat encounter in the book. No. 
because otherwise they would largely steamroll what's there because that's how variable one E characters can be. And first ed's APs were written with a fairly low base assumption. What I find with second ed is that we've had these two full APs. High level characters are have more options, but they remain relatively easy to run because you still don't have that many options uh, and because you only have three things you can do in a round. The flip side of that is also it is much easier to run from the GM side of the table because monsters are far more stripped down, far more clear in terms of what they can do. And also, when designing encounters, so monsters have levels. So in first edition, you had challenge rating. In second edition, we've got monsters having levels, which you use to base on what a party might be able to, to take on. Those numbers for second edition monsters are far more, far more likely to be relevant and actually you know, represent the level of risk they pose than in first edition. In first edition, CR was a vague, vague guide to how dangerous a thing could be. And again, monsters had vastly different levels of challenge, even within the same challenge rating. So you had to be really, really careful. With second, when I'm running second, I know, and this goes for the same as when I ran fourth ed D&D and when I ran um, 13th age, I can trust in what the numbers the system gives me to know that my PCs will have a decent challenge. I, I, it's much easier to grade how difficult an encounter will be because I know that the players, unless they've set out intentionally to screw themselves over <laughs> in the choice they've made, will be able to compete, as it were, because that range of character capability is much narrower in second ed. And that links sort of back to the, this idea of options paralysis that don't actually have all that many options. I'm fairly sure most of us are able to pick between, you know, the three, four, five different things you might be for, for some characters you might have to choose from in any one combat round. Um, if that's if you, you know, if you're talking about it in the context of, of, of a fight. Yeah. So to... I don't. Whilst characters get more stuff they can do, uh, and they are more complex, I don't think that necessarily the game just absolutely doesn't fall apart at level five. And say that for a certainty. I've run loads of games at that level. Um, it, uh, and I've done a fair bit of sort of just testing out for my own sort of interest to see how things work um, at higher levels. And I certainly don't think it's much more robust. Um, it's much more in line with 13th age in terms of so 13th age scales across its 10 levels quite nicely because of you know how they've done monsters because they've actually looked at the underlying maths of how the game works. Uh, and I ran, I've run sort of full 1 to 10th level 13th age campaigns, and it just works because you can trust what's in the books. Second Ed has that feel for me as well. Yeah, yeah. And then, but there's probably something about just good GMing in the sense that when you're waiting for your turn, make your choice. Have a think about what you want to do next. And when it comes round to your turn, you've, you've kind of made your choice. It's not, as you say, it's, it's, it's three or four items that you need to look at just to sort of choose between. But when it comes to you, you know, actually your turn, you've got your three uh, actions and you know what you're going to do because you've thought about it on the way around. It's as much that. And what I've, what I've definitely found is that second edition combat rounds run much more quickly mm. than first edition combat rounds. Certainly it's higher level. It's much quicker to manage and resolve because you don't. So in first edition, so at level 14, you could have, so I've run games at this level in first edition. You know, someone's playing an archer character and their turn comes around and they decide to make a full attack against the enemy. And they're literally having to roll seven attacks 
and seven different damage rolls, and there's you know five different modifiers to their attack and damage roll that they're having to keep track of, and those may change over rounds. Second edition has a lot less of that. There's far fewer modifiers that come into play, um, and you're only doing three things. And if you're if you're a spellcaster, you probably might only be doing two, because most spells take two of your actions to cast, for example. Yeah. No, it's pretty smooth. I like that. I mean, another sort of slightly different question is, um, because because in Pathfinder, if I have this right, I'm back to this thing about every every level that you go up, that's at least a plus one on most on most things that you yeah. are proficient in. Uh, and okay, if, you, if you're completely untrained in a skill, fair enough. But other things, be, be it, uh, well, even at a trained level, you've got all that level coming in. Whereas I think in 5e, it's, it's, it's a slightly f- sort of flatter curve in terms of the development. Um, so yeah, so the two games work quite differently. So 5e has this concept of really restricted number inflation. Yeah. Restricted um, maths. I can't, remember, what did they, I can't remember what they used to call it. Is it bounded accuracy? Bounded accuracy. That's exactly yeah. what it is. So fifth ed, you're pretty much you get the proficiency bonus, which starts at two and eventually goes up to plus six, uh, somewhere in the high teens, uh, and you add that and your stat mod, yeah. uh, and that's it. And for skills, you only get your proficiency bonus if you're, you know, if you've chosen that as one of the maybe four or five skills you actually get. And you don't get any new skills as you go up in level, and you only change your proficiency mod, and your stats don't change very much across levels either, maybe a couple of, po- couple of points or so. So its mass is very, very tight, which creates some issues in other areas, and particularly saves. Second Ed has this idea that you're adding proficiency. So for those who might not be familiar with it, there's five different levels of proficiency, and this applies whether you're talking about skills or attacks or saving throws. So you can either be untrained in something, which means all you're adding is the stat mod that applies to it. If you're trained, you're adding a stat mod and then your level plus two, you're expert, it's your level plus four. If you're master, it's your level plus six. If you're legendary, legendary, it's your level plus eight. So it's maths. Uh, the numbers end up bigger because you're adding your level to train stuff, but the maths still stays in a relatively limited range of numbers. And generally, because as you get to higher level, you're facing more dangerous threats or more difficult situations, depending on what we're talking about. And um, that means the number that you're trying to reach will gradually go up, and the your chance of success in any particular task it isn't static by any means, but it sits in a relatively narrow range on the dice roll, mm. depending on how trained you are. So, you know, if you get to level 15 and you're legendary and it's a good, it's a stat that you are, you have at a good value, then you're, if you're facing um, a moderately difficult challenge, you're probably going to succeed on something like a four or a five, maybe a six on the dice roll. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're only trained, then you're six points lower than that person. So you're going to succeed on maybe a 10 or 11. So the dice is always important. Yeah. Always, There's always a risk of failure there. But the range uh, of competence, um, well, if you're not trained, then you're probably not going to succeed. So if people are untrained in skills, the likelihood of you being able to do much with, uh, with those, certain, certainly as you go higher level, becomes less and less and less. But if you're at least trained in a skill you've probably got a chance of succeeding um, in, in, in a task. And the more you invest in that area, the better your chances are. 
but it's still the dice roll still remains important even at high level even when you're really good at a thing you're not going to push yourself to the point where you will always pass or it's very difficult to do that i mean i'm guessing that's sort of as you say there's kind of a maybe this is true of all level games to one degree or or another and certainly for pathfinder second edition where you are in a i don't know i want to say a minus five plus five sort of range of your actual level in terms of challenge i'm just thinking if if you are getting this incremental increase in in pathfinder particularly yes okay there's a slight range sort of higher math range does does that therefore mean that some of the sort of more standard difficulty class skill checks and certainly the lower level monsters very quickly pale and become relatively straightforward to set aside and that in some ways it's part of the design conceit about it being a sort of a heroic game where you're at some point start you know an orc or something or a um i don't know a zombie or whatever um very quickly becomes something that you can just ignore uh, well, come, I wouldn't say you necessarily ignore it, although it probably can't hurt you. Ignore is over 20, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is part of the design conceit of level-based games. As you get to higher levels, lower-level threats fall away. And, I mean, you can put... Uh, what I will sometimes do is put a bunch of lower-level threats in as a bit of window dressing, scene dressing. So, you know, you, uh, you're higher level, you're attacking... Um, you know, the, the, the lich has raised an army of zombies in the graveyard. Um, I might do it in a couple of ways. Getting to the lich through the graveyard might involve some sort of skill-based challenge mm. uh, where I'm not using combat stats at all, so I don't care that they're regular zombies. I'm going to set a DC based on the fact that there's millions of them and you're having to sort of find a way around them without maybe raising an alarm, for example. Or if I want to put them into a combat encounter, I might just throw a bunch of them on there on the basis I know that they're not actually going to do anything uh, effective against the PCs, but they're set dressing. They're more narrow, and the PCs can just blow through them as they will. Uh, it helps to add a, perhaps a little bit to that flavour of, oh look, how, where have you come on to? What you know, how you know, how have you changed? What you know, oh look, the wizard has, has cleared away this massive stuff that's between you and the, the one you want to get to with a single fireball because everything's failed and fallen over, and that's absolutely fine. What I will also sometimes do is subvert the player's expectations and. Just advance the monster. Make it a new. This is not no ordinary zombie. Um, this is one which has been you know, filled with necromantic power. And actually, it might look you might it might look like a zombie, and you may assume it's just a zombie, you know, because it's mixed in with a bunch of other regular zombies, and so you've ignored it a bit. But actually, this one is a much more dangerous monster, which is designed actually to fight you. And PF2 gives you the rules for doing that. And one of the things it does as well, which was a bit of a wrench for a lot of old 1E diehards, is that, and it's very similar to the way 4th Ed did it and very similar to the way 13th Age did it, creating monsters has nothing, almost nothing whatsoever to do with the rules for creating PCs. So in 1st edition, monsters got hit dice, that hit dice gave them um, their save modifiers, it told you how many skill points they got, how many feats they got, that was all based on the hit dice or their class levels. They were built in the, using the same rules that applied to player characters creating their characters. Um, second edition, Starfinder, 13th Age, these games all get rid of that conceit. And we look to see what sort of challenge do we want this creature to be? And therefore, what sort of stats should it have to represent that level of challenge? So 
I might want a 12th level zombie to fight my PCs. And if I want it to be a real challenge, so I have a level 10 characters, I want a 12th level zombie, I want it to be a challenge. I'm not going to give it the armor class of a level 1 zombie monster. I'm going to give it the armor class of a level 12 monster. And I'm not going to be too bothered about where that necessarily comes from. Whereas in 1st edition, I have to be scratching around to think, well, ooh, does it have a natural armor bonus? Is it wearing armor? What's its dex? Um, does it get bonuses from other places? I just say, no, I want this to be a challenge of this particular level. I'm going to then set it to that. And then I may think about how in-world I'm going to justify that. It might be a massively tough uh, monster. It might have a really great thick hide or what have you. But I'm not going to be looking, scratching around for rules to say it gets this sort of bonus from this sort of thing. I'm just going to say, this is where I want to be. I may create a justification for how it gets there um, if I feel I need one. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, you, well you've certainly convinced me. Let, let me put you on the spot just a little bit. Um, I mean, I sense from I sense from this discussion, I, I know the answer. But um, do you have a preference now between the two, between first edition Pathfinder and uh, second and edition? If you had asked me back when PF two came, oh, if you asked me back during the playtest period, I was very skeptical about PF two during the playtest period because I thought they'd gotten some of the underlying maths wrong. They'd set it up to where you were looking at around, if you were good at a thing, your chance of success was about 40%, which seemed to me way too low to feel like you were actually a vaguely competent hero. Yeah. Yeah. Even at first level, you know, we're long past the days of first edition where when you were level one, you were the, um, you know, the, the farm lad first off the farm. Not that that was ever actually true, because the first level fighter came, you know, completely capable of wearing full plate armor and wielding every every weapon in the book. But we're long past that conceit, probably. I, my my expectation nowadays with first level characters is actually you've got a little bit of experience behind you. You know what you're doing. You're trained in the stuff that you can do. You should be competent. And during the playtest, I was really dubious that they'd gotten that wrong. Uh, and to be fair, they shifted. So when the game came out. That underlying maths had moved about quite a bit, which I was quite pleased to see. There were some issues around, some stuff around how magic worked, about whether they'd... Because in first edition, basically, spellcasters would could quite happily dominate virtually everything across almost all levels of the game. Um, magic was ludicrously powerful in first, in first edition Pathfinder, as it was in third edition. They toned that back a lot, maybe too much in some people's views, Having played and run quite a lot of it over the course of the last year, I vastly prefer to run second edition over first, definitely, especially high level. High level first edition running is a pain. <laughs> really, it, 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 I'll do it and I can enjoy it with the right group. So I enjoy running for my War for the Crown group um, because they're a really interesting group of really good players. But the mechanic side of it is a right chore. So running it, I much prefer running second edition. Um, and actually, I've got to the point over the course of the last year or so that I actually I must much prefer playing second. And in particular, I much prefer playing... I actually I enjoy playing martially orientated and skills-orientated characters in second edition. So in first edition, I primarily, in organized play, I played a load of different types of spellcasters. They did lots of different things. But I played spellcasters because they were ludicrously versatile. I could deal with lots of different things because magic basically trumped all challenges 
after a certain point in time, which made things like skills rapidly became of very little importance because you could generally circumvent most stuff with the right spell. Second edition, that changes. Skills-based characters have lots of impact on the game because of how skills work and because of how proficiency works. And everyone can be a skill-based character. doesn't matter what class you've picked. You can be a skills-based character. You can develop stuff. You can become competent and more than competent in a range of different areas. Um, and rogues, in particular, are, are sort of the king of skills stuff, but also decent in combat. So they, they can contribute and, and deal with stuff across all aspects of the game. And actually, I really enjoy playing them. Whereas in first edition, rogues have the reputation of being skills-based characters because they get a lot of skills points. But actually, they're crap at skills, largely, because they have no way of improving them basically. There are real significant issues with actually creating that sort of skills character, and lots of people can, can overshadow them in very easy, different ways. That doesn't happen in second edition, and also because magic has been scaled back, it's much harder to just say, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circumvent this problem with a spell, because they do less, and you get fewer of them. Something so like actually, skills-based stuff is really good, and I come to really enjoy playing it. No, that's great. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've certainly enjoyed. I mean, I don't have the comparison, but I, I, I've certainly enjoyed it. And but there's something about the levels as well. I mean, I did notice even at first level, characters had a much more sustainable number of hit points just just to actually get you going. Uh, certainly, obviously, than first D. Well, that's that's, not, that's a long time ago. Um, <laughs> certainly, as you're going up the levels, um, and as you say, your adversaries will also uh, increment you know, fairly significant numbers of hit points. And I, I take your point about the magic being scaled back, but when a when a longsword does D8, plus possibly a strength mod uh, uh, thrown in, let's say, and accepting that you've... I think you do have this sort of striking runes uh, option which enables you to have additional damage dice. I've, I've looked at some of the feats for weapon mastery, and they don't... If I've, if I've read them right, they don't... I don't particularly increase your damage that much. Do you feel at higher levels your martial classes are able to sustain sort of significant amounts of sort of damage against these ever inflating sacks of hit points that they're facing? Yes, yes, they can for a, a couple of reasons. So, um, character class feats generally won't add to your numbers for attack and damage, mm. but what they'll do is give you better options. So if you look, for example, the fighter feat double slice allows you to hit, attack twice and combine that damage um, into uh, into a single hit. So it's giving you better options just, just making single attacks. And they get gradually better and better. Striking runes, so, what, so magic weapons are different in second edition. So you buy two different types of runes. The first one will give you bonuses to hit, and the second type will give you extra damage dice for your weapons. So you will be doing more damage as you get to higher level, and they you won't you haven't got to these yet because they come into online at level four generally, as as when striking runes become available. And at higher levels, there are more potent versions that add more damage dice. Uh, also, what you will find is that as you start getting to higher levels, the martial characters will start hitting more frequently because martial characters' weapons proficiency increases faster than anybody else's. So, for example, the fighter at level one is already expert in most weapons that they use. So they're already so a level one fighter with an 18 strength is already attacking at plus 10. So they're an expert, sorry, plus nine. 
So plus one for level, plus four for being expert, plus four for their strength. So you're already attacking a plus nine at level one, mm. where most things have an armor class of somewhere between 15 and 18. Yep. At level five, they become master in one of uh, a set of weapons. So at level five, they've got five for their level, their master, which adds another six, that's 11. They're still adding four for strength, that's 15. And by that time, they'll have a plus one weapon. So at level five, you're attacking a plus 16 for two dice of damage plus uh, four for your strength. And then also you start getting a thing called weapon specialization, which adds a bit of extra damage to each attack that you make. So martial characters keep up in their expected damage. What you still probably won't have is any single character completely taking out a, a sort of equal level monster in a single round because Pathfinder 2 is a team game uh, and you need all of your team working together. One of the areas where that creates a bit of a difficulty is the single big boss monster encounter. Because of how DCs and proficiency bonus scale, you're fight say you're a group of level 10 characters and you're fighting a 13th level monster just on its own, that's probably going to be a very dangerous encounter because that monster will be hard to hit because it's three levels higher than you and it will have a lot of health and its attack bonus will be really high compared to your armor class. And one of the areas which you know still perhaps needs some smoothing out is how the critical hit system works. So if you, you critically hit something, if you roll a 20 and still hit them or if you get 10 or more above their AC, so when you're fighting much higher level monsters than you, that really increases the chance of you being crit. And crits are really dangerous in second edition. <laughs> yeah, very dangerous. Um, but the math still holds up. And what I find, again, I'll go back to the example of 13th age and 4th edge D&D, I can trust the numbers. You will. Some, I, I have yet, I've run so far 70 so second edition PFS games, something like that. I've yet to have a TPK at all. Uh, and in those 70 games, I've only seen one PC die. I've knocked loads of players on uh, PCs unconscious from time to time because, again, we come back to this idea, you can't make the dice roll not matter. Um, so you're going to get hit from you know fairly often. You might well get dropped, but it's really hard to die. The only time I killed a PC was when uh, they were on relatively low health. I crit them, knocking them unconscious, so they went die to dying two. The enemy was using a flaming sword, so they dropped to dying two and were on fire, and they fell over unconscious on a fiery grate, which was doing extra fire damage to them. Yeah, and no one could get to them in time to save them. Yep. That's the only time so far I have actually killed a PC in second edition in a lot of games. Mm -hmm. um, it's been close plenty of times, and I find that that actually adds to the danger. In first ed, it's quite easy to make yourself virtually invulnerable to most on-level challenges by a certain level because you can do things like push your armor class and save modifiers to the point where the enemy needs very high numbers to do anything to you. It's much harder to do that in second edition, so most... So, yeah. It's much easier to make sure that there is a challenge there, um, and I can trust the numbers will will work out uh, by following sort of the encounter building guidelines. For all that the two editions are fundamentally emulating a, a, a similar sort of game genre, if you like, they they really feel like very different games uh, in a way, and that 
the actual work that's gone into second edition is is quite significant. The actual design work under the hood, clearly from all this, all, from all we've discussed uh, today, tells me that it's not like a sort of three point eight, if you like, from a three point seven. No, I think, it feels very. I different. think that that was one of the issues with the difficulty in converting um, some of the first edition plays. So, uh, first Pathfinder came out of the split between third and fourth edition D and D. So it started off with a group of players who were the people who really wanted third ed and wanted to stick with playing third ed, uh, and they did so, and Pathfinder gave them that, that the opportunity to do that. Obviously, over the course of 10 years, it's grown, and it, it attracted first ed Pathfinder, attracted lots of players who just were interested in that as a game. They were, you know, it attracted lots of new players over the course of its lifetime. And I think a lot of, so Pathfinder was often called 3.75 because it was essentially, at least at the start, it was 3.5 with some house rules. Mm. Added a lot after that. So, you know, within those 10 years, we went from something like 12 classes to 36 classes. You know, loads of new subsystems and different ways of doing things. It became its own game. I think it threw off quite a lot of the we're just someone's house rules to become a game in and of itself. It still very clearly had its, its sort of DNA was still clearly third edition but it had become its own thing. I think a chunk of the player base wa wanted and expected second edition to be a tidied up, cleaned up, more streamlined version. So effectively a 3.8 rather than a 3.75. And second edition isn't that at all. Quite a significant break. Still has, you know, some of the DNA is still there. We're still using armor class. We're still using fortitude, reflex, and will saves. We're still... We still have clerics and fighters and wizards and rogues. And, but how the game works has changed quite substantially. And I, I consider second edition its own separate game. It has far less in common at all with third. Much, much less uh, in common with third. It's a much more streamlined, uh, much easier to run, much more cohesively designed game um, than where it came from. And uh, whilst it uses some of the same terminology, I personally consider it a quite a different game. And I'm fine with that because I really enjoy playing and running it. I think that is a perfect wrap. That is, that's, that's an excellent summary and I, I'd, I'd certainly agree with that. So listen, Andrew, uh, thanks very much for uh, joining me on this podcast. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, and I, I certainly couldn't have got there without you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it has been it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Andrew. All right. So there you have it. An hour of Pathfinder. Perhaps looking at some of the myths, and okay, yeah, extolling the virtues. Not as complex a game as perhaps myth would tell you. Um, certainly not my experience. And playable right through the levels. Well. I haven't personally played right through the levels, but fr certainly from the conversation uh, and from what I can judge, it could well be that yes, you can just play through the levels. Uh, you're going to have three or four choices and you need to think about what you're doing at the higher levels, particularly in between combat rounds where you know, you've got some time to think about your next strategy, but it's playable. And the game is, is the same throughout the levels. So in that sense, it doesn't become, if you like, more complicated uh, as the levels go up. 
but certainly you've got more choices because let's face it, Pathfinder majors in providing options for your characters. So there you are, Pathfinder. Uh, I'm looking forward to playing some more. I hope you'll uh, consider playing it if you haven't played it. Give it a go. And if you want to find out more about Pathfinder, give me a shout. All right, that's it for this episode. I won't be too long before I'm back with more. Hope you enjoyed it. Take care. Hope you're well. And talk to you again soon.